Let me just quickly take a moment and say thank you to Chapel Choir for being obedient and answering God's call and going to Maine and serving the people there and showing the love of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful statement and God will use that and we appreciate that. We've got a good group of young folks here at Dawson, amen? So we begin this morning, I want to ask each of you to picture your favorite courtroom drama scene, maybe from a movie or of a television show. Picture that moment that the trial is about ready to unfold, the accused has entered the courtroom and the tensions are high, and the next case on the docket, the next trial coming up, is entitled God versus the Nation of Israel. Step forward, plead your case. It's interesting, as we continue our sermon series this morning entitled Verses, we're going to be looking at another one of our favorites in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You can go ahead and begin turning to chapter 6. It's uh, 923 is the page number in your pew Bible. And as we begin to set the scene, what we're going to find in this passage is Micah, the prophet, is delivering the message from God to the nation of Israel. Micah's message to the nation of Israel, comes with a convicting statement in verse 8, which will be the verse we'll spend most of our time on this morning. But I want to read verse 8 and then look at some contextual verses surrounding it this morning. So if you'll look at verse 8 with me first, the Bible says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the following, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I love this verse. It's a very precise verse, a very pointed verse, and it's actually a very popular one that we've heard for many, many decades. In fact, this verse is actually sort of on a comeback tour in popularity as we have a new generation of believers today that are very focused on fighting social injustice that they see in the world around them. And that's an exciting thing, but I would caution us this morning that we don't take this verse, one, out of context, so we're going to look at the contextual verses around it, and two, I think that sometimes as believers, one of the things that we have a tendency to do is we want to identify ourselves when we read a verse like this with the prophet Micah in this case, or the one that's been assigned by God to deliver the message to the, quote, people that need to hear it. And we fail to identify ourselves as the nation of Israel in this situation, the unfaithful, the disobedient nation of Israel. So Micah uses this fantastic, exciting courtroom scene to set the stage for how he's going to deliver this message from God to the people. And we're going to go through this verse by verse from verse 1 to verse 7 before we get to verse 8. If you'll follow along with me, the first two verses, Micah chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So in this courtroom drama, this um, this conversation between God and Israel that Micah's using to deliver the message, we see God has stepped forward and he's called Israel to come plead their case. Step into the courtroom and plead your case. Now the charge God's bringing against Israel is perpetual disobedience. It is unfaithfulness. 
And he's brought that charge. And then we go on. In verse 3, God moves into an opening statement type of, of thing. And, and for those of you that might be attorneys in Dawson's family of faith, you'll understand the importance of an opening statement, how powerful it can be. And in verse 3, we see God launching into this opening statement. Watch what it says. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And it's interesting because God starts his opening statement with two words, my people. He's recognizing the covenant relationship that he has with Israel. He's recognizing that they are his children and that he is their God and that they are family. He says, my people. But he doesn't leave a way out for them not to give an answer. He demands, in fact, a justification for their actions. I, God, want to know why you have been so disobedient, why you have been unfaithful. And he doesn't stop there. He continues with his opening statement, verses four and five. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered. Remember your journey from Shatim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So as part of his opening statement, God has come forward. He's laid out several things to confirm his righteousness to the nation of Israel, the ways that he has protected them. He says, first, did I not rescue you from Israel, or from Egypt, excuse me? Did I not rescue from under the oppressive hand of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and lead you through the waters that I parted and closed behind you, providing a hedge of protection that they couldn't pursue you? Am I not that God? And he goes on to say, did I not provide you with leadership as I sent you Moses? And then later, Aaron and Miriam to guide you and to counsel you and to lead you. Did I not protect you when the king of Moab, Balak, wanted to place a curse on you? And he summoned Balaam to come and deliver that curse. And I, God, intervened. And I made clear to Balaam that he was not to do that. And Balaam responded to Balak and said, I'm not coming to deliver that curse. The Lord has said no. And am I not the God who delivered you on your journey from Shatim to Gilgal, across the Jordan River, into the promised land that I had prepared for you? It's a pretty powerful opening statement. Doesn't leave the nation of Israel much room to negotiate. And so in verses 6 and 7, in the same courtroom scene, we see the nation of Israel take the stand. And now if it were most of us, we might want to put our best witness up on the stand. And we might want to have the best testimony we could to plead our case to defend ourselves against the charge that God has brought forth, disobedience and unfaithfulness. But instead, in the next two verses, we see Israel sort of fire back at God with a series of questions. Almost, almost trying to defend themselves, but in the wrong manner. They start in verse 6 as follows. With what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves that are a year old? What were they saying in that question? They were saying, do we go back to the sin offerings? Is that what it's going to take from the law of Moses as we bring those one-year-old calves before you? Is that what it will take God to please you to make things right? And they sort of up the ante to the next verse, and they say, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Now, this was ridiculously exaggerated. This was a hyperbole. This was never intended to be a legitimate offering. There's no way that they were going to come up with 10,000 rivers of oil and 1,000 rams. There are a few exa examples in the Bible, maybe at the time of King Solomon, where we would see an offering that large. 
But for the most part, this was never intended to be legitimate. And so again, they respond with one more question. They say, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God, what is it going to take to defend ourselves against this charge? Shall we, as Abraham did, bring Isaac and lay our firstborn on the altar and prepare to sacrifice our firstborn? Is that what it's going to take to make things right with you? You know, it's interesting, in every courtroom drama, there's always that point in the scene where you know, you get a little excited because you know the guilty party, the accused, is going to be exposed. The attorney's going to say those key words that makes it beyond a shadow of a doubt of who the guilty party truly is. It's interesting, in the 1970s, I remember as a child going to visit my grandfather, who lived in Atlanta, and as I would go to, him, uh, to visit his home, he always had some type of reruns on the TV that he would be watching. And one of his favorites was the old black and white reruns of the Perry Mason show starring Raymond Burr. And I would go and visit my grandfather dressed in my tough skins jeans from Sears and Roebuck. And I would come into that den where he had the TV and the dark wood paneling would surround me. And I would sit there with my converse on, dangling over the edge of that flower patterned sofa. And my feet would barely touch the floor of that beautiful shag carpet from the 1970s in a lovely shade of burnt orange. And you're giggling because some of you know you need to go home and remodel. And we would watch those reruns of the Perry Mason show. And it was always exciting to watch my grandfather as he would get energetic right about the time that Perry Mason was going to drop the hammer and deliver the boom. And he would come over and he'd just tap you on the knee and he'd say, watch this. Watch this. There he goes. He got him. He got him. And it was that moment where you knew that the guilty party had been exposed. That's what's about to happen in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. God's listened. He's given his opening statement. Nation of Israel has responded. And now God is going to deliver that powerful statement in verse 8. So if you'll follow along with me, we're going to start at the beginning. Micah 6, 8 says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. Let's just pause right there. What was he saying? He's saying, Israel, you should already know the answers to the questions you just asked. You should know that I, God, am not desiring of you all of your religious rituals and your traditions and your observances and your rites and your ceremonies, but that what I, God, desire from my heart for you is that you do three things, that you act justly, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. Micah 6 eight. The answer to Israel's sin problem was much deeper than any of the religious rituals or observances that they were involved with. The answer to Israel's sin problem boiled down to this, and this is true for us today. They needed a change of heart. So God calls on them to do three things. He expresses his first desire by saying, I desire that you act justly. Now, to act justly does require a change of heart. It's an outward expression. It means that we are going to manifest externally. We are going to show to others our actions as we seek to do what is right in God's eyes. You know, it seems that this wouldn't be that complicated. You can almost picture God just saying, just do it. Just do it. I've explained it to you. I've shown you the way. I've taught you what to do. Just do what is good. Just seek justice. Just do those things that are right in my eyes. But unfortunately, Micah was called to preach and teach and deliver this message to a nation of Israel that at that time, don't miss this, 
They loved evil and they hated good. They loved evil and they hated good. Micah chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 says this. As God was rebuking the leaders and the prophets and the priests of the nation of Israel, he says, should you not know justice? Should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil? Not my words, but the Lord's words. Micah chapter 7 verse 3 tells us that the nations of Israel, their hands were skilled at doing evil. Skilled at not doing those things that were right in God's eyes. And when I think of skilled, I think of somebody who's practiced. They've perfected an art. They've worked at it so long that they got good at it. And their hands were skilled at doing evil. It wasn't even just a skill anymore. It was a lifestyle. And Micah's audience, just like us today, they would have understood act justly as what it is, living with a sense of right and wrong. But that's about as far as they could get because here's the problem. Unfortunately, in those days, injustice, corruption, dishonesty were just as prevalent, just as commonplace as they are today. Just three verses beyond where we're stopping today, Micah 6 verse 11 says, shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? God's saying, shall I just let somebody go that's guilty? Is that what you expect? Now, I grew up in a culture outside of this country, overseas, where dishonesty and corruption was a way of life. It was an expected lifestyle. And we actually had marketplaces where there were dishonest scales and false weights. And you had to know when you went to buy something at the market what it cost. You had to kind of have an idea of what you needed to spend. Because not everyone, but there were those that were dishonest and that were corrupt. And they would rig the scales. And you might be overcharged if you weren't prepared to handle that. I lived in a culture where every taxi that you got into, you needed to check the meter, the reader. Had it been reset? Was it at zero? Was it calibrated correctly? Because if not, you might find yourself paying an exorbitant amount of money to go half a block because you didn't know up front that the meter had been rigged. I lived in a culture where as you went down the highway, there were checkpoints at random locations, document checkpoints, checkpoints to search the vehicle. And many, many times you would be pulled over for those instances. And I grew up outside of the Christian community with, with friends and family members or neighbors that as they would drive down, they had bribe bags in the back of the trunks of their car. What was this for? So that when you got stopped, you handed your documents out the window and you told the officer that stopped you, don't forget to check the trunk. And of course, they would check the trunk and find a bag of a small sum of money or something else that would be a viable bribe. It was commonplace. The rest of us that were choosing to try to do what was right in God's eyes would find our vehicle over on the side of the road with everything we packed strewn out all along the side of the Pan American Highway. It was corruption. It was dishonesty at its best. God's message through Micah, though, was simple. What he was telling Israel and what he's telling us still today is, we're going to have a change of lifestyle. That's what I desire. We're going to change our lifestyle. We're going to start doing what is right. We're going to start acting justly. But also true today, as it was for Israel, unless we recognize our guilt and sin, unless they recognize their guilt and sin, they were never going to be able to act justly in God's eyes. So what does it mean if we take act justly from the time of the nation of Israel to today and bring it into 2017, what are we really talking about? Simply stated, it is taking action 
to make things right in God's eyes. Taking action to make things right in God's eyes. That might mean something like spending some time with someone who's lonely, or defending the weak, or providing food for the hungry, or maybe as a believer, as a Christian leader in your business, or even in church, making a difficult decision because you know it's right in God's eyes and standing on it even though the repercussions may be difficult and maybe not everybody was pleased. There's an amazing definition or a description of acting justly in Isaiah chapter one, verse 16 and 17. Should be on the screens, but listen to this. God's word says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong and learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. Doesn't get much more clear than that. But if it is so clear, why does it seem that so many believers today are almost apathetic to injustice that we see around us all the time? I'll tell you what I think it is. I think honestly for us to act justly, church, it means that our lives are going to have to be different. It means that we're going to have to live a life that's very intentional and takes an effort. It means that we're going to have to step out of our comfort zones so that we can do what is right in God's eyes. As believers, we are called, don't miss this, church, to live a life that not just looks radically different, but is radically different to the way the rest of the world lives. How in the world can we as a church expect to be God's witness in this world, if we're more consumed and more preoccupied with society's expectations than we are God's desires for our heart, we're focusing on the, real thing, or the wrong thing. And because of that, we can't. The answer is, as sinners, we can only be justified. We can only act, just, excuse me, act justly when we are made right in God's eyes. So God desires that we act justly. But there's a second thing in Micah 6.8. He says, he has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and next to love mercy. Now, it's interesting. Justice and mercy are both fundamental to God's character. Psalm 89, 14 confirms that. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. So loving mercy is also a change of heart, but it starts Inward, It's an inward attitude that we have to change. While acting justly, doing what is right is an outward expression, loving mercy begins inside. It's a change of heart that happens inwardly. It literally means loyal love or loving kindness. See, God expects us to show love and mercy to our fellow man, to our neighbor, just as he showed loyal mercy and love to us. Now, I've struggled with this personally. This is a difficult one. How do you put justice and mercy in the same sentence? If I'm going to seek justice, but at the same time show mercy, it just seems that they might almost counteract each other. There's a story that's helped me to kind of understand this and process this. The story goes that in the town of Wishaw, Scotland, many, many years ago, there was a man who was a judge. He was a believer. And one day in his courtroom, there appeared before him a man that he recognized as a childhood friend, someone that he had grown up with, 
someone that he had had a close relationship with. Now, this man before him in the court had wandered. He had strayed, and he had lived a life of sin, and he'd committed some crime against the land and was now before this judge in the court. Now, everyone in the town and everyone in the courtroom knew the relationship of the two men, and so their assumption and their expectation was that the the criminal would just get sort of a slap on the wrist, just sort of get a pass, if you will. And so they were surprised when the judge handed down the sentence and there was a hefty fine, a really almost exaggerated fine for the crime that he'd committed. But they were even more shocked when the judge then got down from the bench and walked across the courtroom and found the officer of the court, removed from his pocket his billfold, removed a sum of money equal to the fine he had just imposed and paid it on behalf of that man. So I ask you, Did he act justly, and did he show mercy? And the answer is yes. The illustration helps. It kind of puts it in perspective. But for me, I'm a little stubborn, so it still raises another dilemma. Because I say to myself, well, how in the world can we really show mercy if we have not ourselves experienced God's mercy? See, as God's people, we're called to be pouring out kindness, to be caring for others, to be showing mercy and love to everyone. But if we haven't really experienced God's mercy, then how are we supposed to effectively make that happen? In 1757, there was a man named Robert Robinson. And Robinson had been saved. He came to know Christ through George Whitfield's uh, ministry in England. He was a preacher and evangelist in the 1700s. And Robinson, as a young man, had come to know the Lord. And at about the age of 22, maybe 23, he sat down one day and he penned the words to a hymn, to a song we still sing today, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And you know the opening words, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. What a beautiful hymn that he penned. But unfortunately for Robinson, it wasn't much after that that he wandered. He was prone to wander and wandered into a life of sin, and he began to distance himself far from anything that the Lord had called him to do. And the story goes that one day there was a woman. She was riding on a stagecoach, and she was reading through a book of hymns and verses and prose and poetry, and she came across a section that just really impacted her. And as she began to read it, she thought, wow, this is this is so powerful, I want to share it. And she shared it with the man next to her. So she turned and she read a series of words and phrases. Some of what she read was this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And as she began to read, the man next to her broke down in tears, hung his head as he realized those were the words that he had written. And he turned to her, he said, Madam, I am the unhappy man that wrote those words years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I could just go back to have the feelings once again that I had when I wrote that. And she sort of gathered herself, and she turned to him and she said, I am certain from the depths of my heart that the streams of mercy that you wrote about, those that are never ceasing, that come from our heavenly Father above, are still flowing to this day. And Robinson repented, and Robinson turned back to the Lord and eventually was restored to ministry and went on to do many great things. See, it amazes me sometimes how reluctant we are to come running back to God, 
to hit our knees and to confess our sins and to repent and to ask for forgiveness and to receive that mercy, that overwhelming mercy that God has for each and every one of us. When we do that, it lifts the burdens off of our shoulders and it empowers us to share mercy with others. That's how we know we're in the right place. So to act justly, to love mercy, but then God has one other desire that he shares in verse eight, and that is to walk humbly, to walk humbly. Now this describes our heart's attitude, but it's not an outward expression, and it's not an inward change, but it's an upward expression as it describes our relationship with God. See, when God talks about walking, he doesn't use the word walking the same way we do. When we talk about walking, we think one foot in front of the other, get to where I need to go. But when God talks about walking, he talks about a relationship, a long-term committed relationship. See, the Bible tells us that Noah walked with God faithfully. It tells us that Abraham was called to walk with God faithfully and to be blameless. It even tells us that Enoch walked with God for 300 years because of that relationship with God. Listen to these verses. Leviticus 26, 12 says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Isaiah 30, verse 12, whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, and we know this, this is the way, walk in it. See, when God talks about walking, he's promising to be there with us. He's promising to lead us, to guide us, to show us the way, to be with us on the mountaintops of our life and in the lowest valleys of our life. It's a long-term relationship. Even Micah, in chapter four, verse five, talks about walking with God when he says, all the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but don't miss this, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. But Micah didn't just say walk with God. There was a second part. He said walk humbly with God. And humbleness happens when we begin to see ourselves the way God sees us. See, humbleness takes place when we see the sin in our own lives and we see the self-righteous behavior in our own lives. I love the illustration, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. He talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you'll indulge me, in verse 9, I'd like to share this before I tell the parable. He starts off, or it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, to those people, Jesus told the following parable. And he goes on to tell the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it goes, Two men came to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood up with his head held high and his arms outstretched, and he began to pray. God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you that I'm not an evildoer. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer. In fact, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I give a tenth of everything I get, and I fast twice a week. God, thank you. And Jesus goes on to say, and then they moved to the tax collector, and he began his prayer. And he stood a distance away, and his head was down low, unwilling to even look at the heavens. And he cried out as his prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And Jesus wraps it up beautifully when he says, and I tell you that this man, rather than the other man, will be justified before God. Why? Because he who exalts himself will be humbled, as in the case of the Pharisee, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, as the tax collector had demonstrated. So as we wrap things up today, Micah chapter 6 Verse 8, a favorite verse, an exciting verse, a verse where God delivers his desires to us. But it's not a verse of salvation. It is a verse of reminder to a disobedient Israel and a reminder to us today that we can only do what God desires for us when we present ourselves to him as broken sinners in need of salvation. Church, the world is full of people who are doing good things who are walking in humility, who are showing mercy to others. But the Bible tells us, God's word is clear, we are not saved by one single righteous act that we do, but rather we are saved because God poured out his mercy on us through Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with this. Warren Wearsby, the great Bible teacher and commentator, summed it up when he talked about how to live according to God's desires. And this is what he said. The only people God can save are lost people. The only people God can forgive are guilty people. If we see ourselves as God sees us, then we can, by faith, become what he wants us to become. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you this morning for revealing to us what is good. And not just showing us what is good, God, but for showing us what is good, and reminding us that what is good is what you desire. God, we recognize that this morning there may be areas of our life that are not right with you. There may be areas of our life where we have expressed uh, energy and, and desire to pursue something that was on our heart, and we have neglected the things that were on your heart. We know that your ultimate desire, God, is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and to see each one of your children know him as Lord and Savior of their life, and that by believing in him, we might have eternal salvation. God, we thank you in this morning because you love us that much. God, thank you for being faithful in communicating the desires of your heart to us through your word. May we in turn be found faithful as we act justly, as we love mercy, And we walk humbly with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.